Okay, and when yours is on and recording, I'm going to let you do the clap. All right. One, two, three. No? Oh, I think it happened. Oh, let's do it again. <laughs> okay. I didn't hear your clap. One, two, three. Dog now barking. Welcome to Women on the Verge of a Financial Breakthrough, where we are figuring out finance one dumb question at a time. My name is Caitlin Meredith. I'm a coach and mediator based in the Bay Area. I'm Sarah Glakis. I'm an investor, advisor, and founder of Black Barn Financial and the Austin Women's Investing Group, which can be found on Meetup. So after I took Sarah's uh, Investing for Beginners class in 2014-15, I had known nothing about it, and then I became a total evangelist, and I came up with this idea to have a one-page explanation flyer to hand out to bouncers in Austin that was like, you, anybody can open a retirement account, anyone, even you, so here's how to do it. And I got really excited and spent many many evening happy hours at with the bouncers instead of my friends in Austin because I just thought like everybody needs to know this. So that one page flyer has developed now into this podcast. So welcome. Okay, before we start, this is our last episode of season one, episode 15. And we really, really want to do a second season, and we need your help. If you can please leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to us, that would be amazing. And if you could share with three women in your life that you just met, have known forever, or you see when you do school drop-off every day, And just let them know about our podcast in case they're someone who's been afraid of finance just like me and needs little support and education. We would be so thankful. And Sarah, you want to tell them what we want to do for next season? Yeah. And if you have any questions or any topics that you know that you want us to cover in season two, go ahead and check us out at womenontheverge.com and send us an email with your ideas. Uh, We want this to be a podcast for you. So if you have something that you definitely want to know, uh, let us know and we'll try to get it done in season two. Okay, so Sarah, here is my question for you. And it's about finance, but it's a little bit more about you. I'm so thankful that I know you, and I'm so thankful that we're friends. And also, I spend a lot of time thinking, why the fuck did Sarah choose to become involved in finance? Like, how is this possibly her specialty in investing? I know you probably ask yourself that some days, too. But we were on a podcast together um, for meetup.com, and the host, the CEO, asked you, like, how did you get into this field, Sarah? I think was the first time... I had ever heard you answer that question. And so I want to steal the question for our listeners so they can hear what your path was, because it is so connected to what we're doing right now. So tell me, Sarah, how did you become interested in a a career in finance and investing? 
Oh my gosh, I hope I get this. I hope I get this right. I hope I remember <laughs> what I said on that podcast. I'll correct you. Well, when I first got out of college and moved to Austin, my first job was as a legal assistant at a family law firm here in Austin. So, family law is, you know, a nicer word for divorce law. Um, and so, you know, through my experience at the family law firm, I would just see people come in like during the very worst, most vulnerable time in their lives. And many, many, many of our clients were discovering for the very first time um, how much money they had or didn't have, um, how much they were going to end up with, end up with after a divorce um, or not end up with. And it was just like this horrible crash course in personal finance that people were being forced to undertake, you know, during the most stressful part of their lives. Um, and that just, it really affected me, right? I really saw how the person, the spouse or the partner who had uh, the financial acumen was in just a, such a superior position to the, the person who didn't. Um, and I didn't want that for those people going through it. And so I just thought, well, okay, if, you know, if I can become a financial advisor or, you know, just someone who um, has some expertise in this field and is willing to share that with people, even just the basics, it's just the type of knowledge that can really change someone's life. So um, I went to business school. I had taken one business class. Really? As my undergrad, it was the second semester, senior year. I finally took a class in the business school, and it was personal finance. And oh. something like the things that I learned in that class, I, I took with me, you know, as soon as I got out of college, I started contributing $2,000 a year to my Roth IRA, which was um, the limit at the time in, what, 2001. And I was interested in the stock market, and I just wanted to learn more. I, you know, kind of read all of the classic financial books. Um, and while I was at the law firm, I just it just kind of solidified, I don't know, just my my vision for what my path would be. So um, I went back to school, uh, ended up not staying on the personal finance track. I ended up on the corporate finance track. But um, either way, I ended up learning a lot about. Uh, a lot about finance, uh, a lot about investing, a lot about the capital markets. And that kind of took me down the path where I am now. I love the idea that you got to take a personal finance. There was definitely no personal finance class in my college, like high school, college, anywhere. And I love that it sparked this interest that initially was like personal to you. And then you were able to connect when you worked at the law firm to like how many people didn't get that personal finance class. And how you could make an impact by sharing your knowledge. You also connected it in our previous interview with women emerging from marriages in the caretaker role and how that often, whether they're divorced or married or mothers or not, how that sort of gendered caretaker role often is at the expense, literal, the literal expense of their financial health. Am I getting that part right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's really common. Or it was, you know, when I was at the law firm to see, um, you know, the, the 
the spouse that had been out of the workforce taking care of the kids, right? And, you know, when you get divorced in Texas, um, you basically just kind of split up what you've accumulated, but, or, and in Texas, there isn't really a substantial amount of spousal support or alimony that women receive when they're in this position. Um, The idea is that when you get divorced, you might receive some type of alimony or spousal support on your way back into the workforce, right? So the, the, the women mostly, there were, there were men, but you know, mostly women who had taken on these caretaker roles, either for children or for um, grown, grown children or parents um, were being, were expected to return to the workforce uh, pretty much no matter how long they'd been out of the workforce. Everyone makes that decision in real time, you know, to the best of their knowledge. And I don't know if that many people make that choice expecting to end up, you know, divorced, you know, 15 or 20 years down the road. Um, But it definitely had a disproportionate impact on the women that came through the office because they were most often the ones who had taken on that caretaker role for no money um, and now were being told that that experience that they had gone through had no monetary value or had very little monetary value. Um, And uh, they needed to get back in the workforce and they needed to know how to manage the money, even if that had not been a role they had taken on until that point. That's what I was thinking is that there's so many factors that complicate and make that a really pressured situation is one, like having to re-enter the workforce and not just get any job, but a job that can support yourself and your kids. Like maybe you get child support, but still you have kids for whatever percentage of time. So getting, a, you know, not an entry level position that a young person can get, but like a job that a parent that has a family needs to get. But the other side of it is just if your partner managed all of the retirements, you know, savings, the investments and everything, even if you get a hunk of money, just knowing what to do with it, you're starting so far behind. Um, and I can imagine if I was in that situation and I was offered like half of the retirement accounts or the equivalent amount in cash, I'd be like, cash, yeah. definitely yeah. cash, that's safe. Like that's real money. And now knowing what I know now, I hope I would do it differently. But I'm wondering if you saw that too, just that natural inclination to be like a physical object, like the house, whereas what the more savvy soon to be ex-partner would choose are the things that would, you know, balloon over time through the cycle of compounding interest, which I'm still learning what is. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The the things that the non-financial spouse almost always wanted were the house and the cash, right? And and you totally get that, right? Like it totally makes sense. Like if you don't have an income or you have a much lower income going forward on your own, um, you need something to pay the bills right, until that, that situation yeah. works itself out. Um, but certainly like the idea of keeping a giant illiquid asset like a house for the good of your children is from a financial perspective almost never going to work because almost all of these houses come with a mortgage and 
someone has to pay the mortgage and the house is illiquid and it's uh it, it just it you know going through a divorce isn't the moment in time when most people have the space to do long-term planning mm-hmm. and loop someone in to do some of that but it but it's almost the time when they when they really should and there are financial planners out there who are certified um, divorce planners um, and do kind of specialize in this type of thing but certainly you know that certain assets look more valuable during that period of time um, but maybe if you're trying to put together a long-term plan for yourself, aren't the assets that you would choose with a long-term perspective versus a short-term perspective. Yeah, and you need that education. And I want to do a whole episode on this, just like divorce financial planning and how to find those people that can help you navigate because you're doing a million things at the same time. Um, So navigating the financial aspect of like what to ask for, what to, you know, what kind of plan to come up with with your soon-to-be ex-partner. Yeah. Um, so that your biases don't, you know, handicap you in the long run for your financial future. I'm also wondering about the tendency that you talked about where women in the scenarios we're talking about want liquid assets on hand because they're they want to be prepared for a bunch of what if scenarios. Oh, yeah. And that that totally makes sense. And then it might be hard to get out of that mode. Um, you know, so if your adult children need something, you want to be able to provide it. And so sort of like on the airplane that you're supposed to put on your own oxygen delivery system <laughs> first. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then your kids that our tendency as parents could be the opposite in in other ways. And we've talked about this too in college, saving for college, like how to make sure you prioritize your own financial long-term health as the first priority before other people's. And I guess I'm pointing to just being in that caretaker role in and of itself is something that would lend you to a bias to taking care of other people first. Certainly, like that's something that that I hear all the time, wanting to maintain a lot of uh, flexibility in the short run. When you're sitting on a lot of cash, just in case, I think that most people go into that assuming it's a short-term decision, right? I'm gonna, I'm just gonna keep this cash just to be safe for now, but eventually, whatever uncertainties, you know, are happening are gonna clear themselves up, and then I'll be ready to invest, right? You know, the problem with that and with investing in general is that the uncertainties never stop, right? So you can always kind of go through and uh, seek out and identify any number of short-term risks and uncertainties forever for your whole life right because they're never they're never ever ever going to stop so uh, if you take upon yourself to be the backstop for everyone um, you're never going to get a chance to take that cash out of the you know the short-term emergency fund that maybe isn't just for you, but for your kids or your parents or your siblings or your business or whoever, um, and get it into those higher return assets over time. Um, Because once you start, I don't know, committing to that, to kind of being the emergency fund for everybody, I think it's really hard to to change that course over time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and you're tying in this really depressing yet real idea that like the uncertainties go on forever that is life ties in perfectly with the next thing that I wanted to ask you about 
that is, what the fuck is inflation? Like, not <laughs> really, because I remember sitting through lectures about inflation, inflation in social studies in seventh grade or whenever they teach you, like, the very basics of the economic model and just being like, someone kill me now. This is so boring. It's not so boring today, um, as it turns <laughs> out, where I live. Gas is over $6 a gallon. And the only word I know how to describe that other than holy shit is inflation and, you know, milk prices, inflation and everything. And so I feel like I need to, you know, my usual approach is just, you know, ignore because it's too complicated or scary to learn about it. Um, I'm not sure. And also a feeling of helplessness. Like even if I understand it, I can't do anything about it. So therefore just let it be. Um, is that a rational approach to inflation? And also it's ridiculous. Like everyone I know is worried about inflation. So like my bury my head in the sand, can't do anything about it anyway, approach isn't super helpful maybe to our listeners. So I was wondering if you had something, a frame of reference that you use when thinking about inflation. Yeah. So when I think about inflation, I just think about um, the phenomenon of prices for things going up over time at some rate, right? So it's March of 2022, you know, the first quarter of this year, and really since it, the since Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, the the price of what oil and gas and um, gasoline and other raw materials has really skyrocketed. No one really has a really, really great understanding of how inflation works over long periods of time. Um, but in the short run, it can be relatively easy to understand as um, there's not enough supply to meet the demand for whatever reason. And so when you think about a shock like the war in Ukraine, uh, you can think, okay, well, this is pretty straightforward because uh, Russia and Ukraine are both big producers of the types of things that we all need, food and energy. And so if we can't get those things from that part of the world, where are we going to get it? Right? There's no additional supply that can come online really quickly. Um, so... The demand is probably roughly the same as what it was three or four weeks ago, but now the supply is a lot less. And so prices Or it n isn't yet, but it's in jeopardy. So everyone's right. freaking out. And the people who own those things can charge whatever they want because people like me are free. I mean, A, I need to drive places. Anybody who, you know, most people that work, whatever, have shift jobs, need to drive places to work. And we need to eat food. So we're going to do that. So they're in a pretty good situation to leverage that fear to charge whatever they want. We don't really have a choice about doing it or not. Yeah, I mean, there can be some price gouging, certainly, that, that happens and hoarding. Um, and so kind of, you know, now inflation is at the forefront because it was happening kind of slowly and then quickly. And now it's on everybody's, now it's on everybody's radar. Uh, one of the things that the Federal Reserve does is they try to project how high prices can go before the high prices themselves start to affect our demand for those things. 
Did that make sense at all? Yeah. So at, right now, gas is $6 a, a gallon where I live. Okay. Like, I still have to drive. When it goes to 10 I will make very, very different decisions about yeah. where I drive my car. Right now, I'm on the borderline. Like, I'm, you know, I've reduced. But by time it's 10, I'll be like, you can keep your gas. Like, I'll figure yeah. something else out. So one of the things they say about inflation is that the cure for high prices is high prices, <laughs> right? That at some point, wow. people will only pay so much for stuff, and then they'll change their behavior. And they do that, like, based on lower prices. You might consume more because the price mm -hmm. is low, but you also do it with higher prices. Like, I'm going to consume less because I just don't want to pay these prices. And so that phenomenon over time is really complex and really, really hard to project. I mean, if you think about what's going on now and the price of gas is going up, especially, you know, some there's some cushion that people have to just absorb that cost as of now. Um, but like you said, like at some point, people are just going to cut back on driving, right? They're just not going to pay it anymore. And they're going to change their behavior and not consume as much gas. And then you kind of think of like the second and third order effects. Like what about the people who are out shopping for a car and choose an electric vehicle over a gas-powered vehicle? Yeah. Th those people are choosing to not consume gas in that way anymore, right? Or at least for like some extended period of time while they have this electric vehicle. And if you think about all the fleets of vans and delivery trucks that maybe are making those same decisions, you can see that this like, these inflation projections become less predictable the farther out you go. Because people do make decisions that impact what they consume, you know, certainly in the short term, but over the long term too. Yeah. So, you know, if, you know, if, you know, one of the things I think is a, a, it's a good idea to have a handle on inflation because the way that you experience inflation is related to the types of things you consume, right? If you don't have a car, maybe you don't experience the increase in gas prices the same way that the rest of us do. But if you, you know, have a delivery business, you are experiencing the increase in gas prices in a you know much more pronounced way, in a much more severe way than other people might. So having some ideas to how the price of different things increases over time is a good idea when you're doing long-term planning. I mean, generally speaking, the price of education and the price of healthcare in the recent past has gone up faster than inflation in other stuff. Hmm. Right. So if you have, uh, if you're planning on paying for an education for someone, for yourself or someone else, or if you're planning on getting older and maybe having <laughs> some It's up there on my top needs. five considerations. <laughs> then inflation becomes, like, it becomes a real issue that you want to deal with in your investments because you want your, your wealth to keep pace and maybe, if you're lucky, even exceed the rate at which the price of stuff is going up. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, and it's actually terrifying because, you know, I'll notice the milk prices and the gas prices on a Tuesday and those, you know, I'll be totally spinning. But it's another one of those things where like healthcare costs, that's actually a much bigger impact on my financial health over a long period of time. So I want to talk about this forever, but 
like I am curious how I'm supposed to think about this in terms of how much I am invest in my retirement funds and my investment for my future. Am I supposed to stop driving and put all that gas money in my Roth or my 401k to compensate for the inflation that will inevitably rise? Or do I just like have to plug along with my time value of money calculator and say, this is how much I can afford to put into those every, like, I can't do anything about the inflation that will go on between now and when I retire. And therefore, close my eyes, plug my ears, and sing my la la la. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can't really do anything about it unless you're able to shift the types of things that you consume from higher cost stuff to lower cost stuff, right? So that's taking a look at the budget and seeing if you have that flexibility in your budget. From an investing perspective, it's really, really tricky. At this stage too, March of 2022, it's a little bit or a lot of bit, like you pick your poison, right? Because if you think about kind of the four major categories of things that people can invest in, um, you have cash, right? Cash is still basically at 0% rate of return. So you will definitely fall behind inflation. If you are at 0% and inflation runs at, let's say it settles out at 3% per year. So that idea is the $10,000 I put on my under my mattress today, when I retire in 40 years, will only be worth $3,000 in, in that year's worth because of inflation. Right. It'll, it'll be cut by 3% per year. Okay. Uh, every year. Um, and bonds are the same thing. Bonds are very low risk, low return investment. If inflation runs at 3% per year and your bonds, well, if your bonds yield 3% per year, which they don't write this very second, but they might eventually, if you can get bonds that yield 3% per year and inflation is at 3% per year, hey, then you're a break even. Okay. Right? So you're at least like keeping pace. With stocks, over long periods of time, Stocks tend to have rates of return that are about the rate of inflation plus, let's call it four, five, six percent per year on top of inflation. Okay. But that is, it comes with, as we know about the stock market, tons of volatility. Mm -hmm. So right now, first quarter of 2022, the stock market has just been rough, just a rough place to be. The stock market is going down. Inflation is going up. All of these prices for different assets are adjusting to account for the uncertainty and the inflation that's coming through the system. So um, stocks have not offset inflation yet. Um, you would kind of expect them to eventually be a pretty good long-term investment in an inflationary environment. Uh, but in the short term, they have not been so far. When you say inflationary environment, that's like, you know, the environment. <laughs> like there's no environment, yeah. there's no economic environment. Like now it's ex particularly extreme, but there's no version of our country that it doesn't have inflation. It's just a matter of like what the rate is at any given moment or over the time, over time, right? Um, in the U.S., we tend to have inflation and, and only relatively short periods of time with either disinflation, where the inflation rates are going down, or deflation is when prices are going down. 
So we tend to have deflation after um, asset bubbles burst um, and during recessions. Um, but globally, I mean, Japan is the is the poster child for a deflationary environment. The prices of stuff in Japan don't really go up. They go down over long oh. periods of time. So they've been in a deflationary environment for decades. Um, and they're, they're a mature economy, right? Just like the U.S. is a mature economy. So deflation is not unheard of. Um, and, it, and deflation is a problem in and of itself, right? If you're in an environment where prices are continuously going down, people will wait to buy something right. until the price goes down. Which I was just thinking I'll go to Japan then in 10 years instead of next year because it'll be even cheaper. Right. But, you know, the Japanese economy could use your dollars right. today. Right. Right. But think of like all the people participating in Japan's economy who are uh, keeping hold of their cash uh, because the price of stuff goes down. Right. And you're either waiting it for, for it to go down more or you don't want to buy something because as soon as you buy something, it's going to go down in price You know, going forward. That is not a great economic outcome either. So I think most economists believe that having some reasonable amount of inflation in an economy is a good thing. It like keeps things moving, okay. right? It, it prevents you from hoarding cash. It's like the Metamucil of the American economic <laughs> system. <laughs> no, is that not a tagline they've adopted? Okay. That, that's pretty good. Yeah. You just got to keep things regular, right? You don't want to like tip too far one way or the other. Um, no backups. But, yeah. But certainly like coming out of the pandemic, we're going through economic cycles really, really fast. We went through like recession, depression, expansion, inflation, like really fast. And so a lot of this inflation we're experiencing today, um, a lot of it can be attributed still to pandemic supply chain issues, right? That the supply chains, the workers, the factories, the producers aren't still at 100% because of COVID still. Um, and like we all are coming out of the pandemic wanting to do stuff, right? Like we want to spend money and live life. And so there's a lot of demand for all sorts of stuff, but we're still not at the place where the supply is running smoothly, whether it's from, uh, you know, pandemic related snarls in the supply chain that still haven't worked themselves out or now, you know, war related supply chain issues that nobody knows how that's going to work itself out. It's just it's just rough out there. So the only thing that can give is prices. Either you produce more stuff and get it to people that would bring prices down or you demand less stuff that would bring prices down until those things kind of reach some better type of equilibrium, then the prices are just gonna be really volatile, like moving up and down, like with every with every new shock that comes into the system. So it's not awesome. No, and what am I supposed to do about that as a woman on the verge of a fi financial breakthrough? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, am I in retreat mode now or in, I am in mode like, as normal as possible mode, like cut back on consumer items, whatever I can, but like my 
What I'm worried about here is that it'll make me feel like, what is the point? Everything's going to become so expensive, I can't pay for it anyway. So my measly little retirement savings account is a joke in the face of what inflation could be by the time I retire. So like, give up now. Like, that's where I'm going with my thought process. Like, you know, oh, oh, great. I don't have to worry about this anymore because it's just like too extreme. I have a feeling that's not the way that I should be thinking about it, but it doesn't feel like a place for middle ground for me right now. Like it's either (laughs) give up or plug away with my original plan as best as I can and just ignore the fact of inflation. Yeah, you're not the only one. Um, Things are pretty intense right now. Um, Interest rates cycle just like everything else cycles. So um, it's not... It's not most economists' base case assumption that prices continue to go up by 7% per year for a long period of time. Most people, as of now, think the rate of inflation comes down to a more reasonable, you know, two and a half to maybe 3% annual rate, which is manageable. But what it does mean is that if you are worried about inflation, you cannot hide in cash for very long because you're locking in that negative 3% rate of return and you're not even giving yourself a chance, right? So I think that instead of trying to forecast where inflation is going, you know, what types of investments do best in a hyperinflationary environment, which is like really, really high inflation, or, I mean, it's a diversified portfolio. It's the same damn answer no matter what happens. Diversified portfolio. Right. Because like right now, the companies that are doing the best are the companies that produce that stuff that you need to buy. Right. So it's the energy producers. um, Banks are doing pretty well right now because they, um, as the cost of money goes up, interest rates go up. Banks tend to do better. Uh, Companies that make or um, mine or produce the raw materials that go into things are probably going to do okay. Um, but again, like it's it's hard to know how long an environment like this goes on because people will adapt and the economy will adapt. So if you imagine um, like the supply chain issues, um, the food security, energy security, cybersecurity issues that are now at the forefront, there's a lot of money to be made for the companies that can solve those problems. Yeah. And so still in the U.S., like the whole point of capitalism is to incentivize people to come up with ideas on how to solve these problems. So, you know, what is the solution to high gas prices? It's probably a combination of technology um, in getting the, you know, getting the oil out of the ground, getting it to where it needs to go and, you know, getting it spread around to the people who need it, but it's also the technology that goes into making everything more efficient so that you just need less. Um, And those two things are kind of working at the same time. And they're not in balance right this very second, but that doesn't mean they won't be in balance in the future. Or, I mean, that's like what, those are the types of problems that uh, someone is going to make a ton of money solving these problems, right? Yeah, it's not going to be me. Okay. I mean, (laughs) it it might be you if you're investing in those companies, though. Oh, right. right. Okay. So I'm going to extrapolate from all this explanation that 
my stance towards inflation sort of has to be my stance towards the day-to-day stock market that like I can't look at it too seriously. I'm in the long term. I have to have some faith that all these crazy extremes will somehow even out over the long term, stick to my strategy. And when someone says inflation, 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 just be like, that's just noise. I'm not hearing it. Because I have no other choice. Like if I get conservative, if I just do cash and bonds, I'll definitely lose out. Right. But if I keep in my index funds and my diversified portfolio, there's a much better chance that I will not only break even, but continue to grow a a savings account that will support me in whatever way at retirement. Yeah. I mean, I will say going back to one of the other things I think that you touched on before, in this particular period, people's wages and incomes are going up more than they have for a long time. And so if you're still in working income mode, you know, taking a look at your career and your job prospects and doing what you can to lock in higher income, whether it's changing jobs or getting a new certification or asking for a raise or you know, whatever it is, um, that can be a way to offset inflation too. You know, if you're able to, if you're able to get a higher income, maybe adjust your spending a little bit to try to avoid the very high cost areas right now, and you can save a little bit more money. Then you can save some more in your diversified portfolio over the long run and give yourself an even better chance of keeping pace with all of these things. But I think in this, like so far in this environment, people's incomes like are adjusting upward, which is a positive for most people, especially people who have never invested before and don't have to, you know, have never had the wherewithal to to save any of their income. Those people disproportionately benefit when their incomes go up. Well, and I was going to say, if you'd never invested before and you started today, that's like amazing because the stock market's so low, you're buying low and you have the only way you have to go up is up, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, take your income, open your 401k plan at your new employer, um, put it in a target date fund, get that thing going, to get your match if you can get one, and get it going. It's, I mean, from that perspective, it's not a terrible time to be investing. Like, as like someone who has been investing for a long time, especially if, you know, I'm what? I'm going to be 43. So I was a, I was a child during the last like real inflationary periods. So going through the adjustment in prices in stocks and bonds during an inflationary period is is pretty stressful for people. Um, but you know this isn't this is probably not the way it's always going to be. There's going to be a period of adjustment, just like there always is in the markets. Um, everything goes through cycles, uh, problems, hopefully will get worked out uh, as um, as time goes on and as you know new ideas come to the forefront and as people change their behavior. Uh, but you got to kind of stick with it through the cycle because you never know when that cycle is going to shift. Right. And- so the geniuses like, you know, me <laughs> um, that are like, oh, I'll cash out right now and wait till the inflation stops and get back in 
just like trying to do that with the stock market fall is impossible because this stuff, we cannot predict how long the downs will be and when the ups will come. And we just have to white knuckle it. Right. And in investing, um, there are millions of people whose job is to um, start making adjustments before the actual data starts coming in. So a bunch of investors will be ahead of you. By the time you recognize that a shift has happened, the markets will have already reacted. Uh, So it's there's not like a they say, you know, they don't ring a bell at the top of the market or at the bottom of the market. Um, The whole, you know, everybody in the market is trying to make these predictions about, you know, when to be in, when to be out. And if you get caught up in that, um, you're setting yourself up to to be whipsawed. Right. That just means like you're on the wrong side of these turns in the market that's that's really it's really easy to have that happen to you um and that it it's more it's more of a risk when you start looking at shorter and shorter shorter term time horizons and less of a risk if you really zoom out to like where might we be 10 years from now is there any of the retirement accounts that we've discussed that do better or worse given inflation. So I'm thinking like a 401k or the solo 401k or a self-employed, those all mean that I don't pay income taxes for the money I put in them this year, but I do for the year that I take the money out of them. A Roth, I do pay my income tax still for the money that I put into the Roth, but I won't have to pay any taxes on the money that comes out of the Roth. First, let's make sure I got that right. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So in terms of inflation, is there any is there any way that that would guide us about in this particular environment where to put more of our money? If I had to choose between 5000 in my 401k and 5000 in a Roth, does inflation affect that, affect that at all? Um, I mean, probably not. Um, probably not in any like real straightforward way way. Are there any investments that you're like, hell no, right now in this inflationary environment? Uh, You're just not going to be able to sit in cash as long as you want to. Uh, Like during inflationary times, people want to hang on to cash because the inflation is causing other asset prices to fluctuate, especially the stock market. Um, But over long periods of time, you're you're gonna you're not even giving yourself a chance to keep pace with inflation if you're hiding in cash for too long. Um, so I would just I would just be careful about that. Okay. Well, well, I can't say what you're telling me is super reassuring from a global perspective. I can say it's reassuring in that I can't. I'm right in that I can't do anything about this. I mean, I can try to make more money. And so that I up my retirement, but I would, you would tell me to do that anyway. Um, <laughs> that's, that, that's always the answer. So, um, always like make it a priority. Yep, you've already said that. So I'm kind of right. Like inflation, 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 blah, 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 except that it affects real people's lives who, like house cleaners, people that have no, their entire wages depend on driving everywhere, Uber drivers, 
And now those wages are being cut into so significantly. Um, And, you know, people like me who'd be like, oh, I'll take an Uber instead of driving to save my gas prices. Well, I'm just like shunting the problem to somebody else then. Um, Or they start charging a lot more to compensate. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to take an Uber anymore. So they don't get work. Like there's some serious immediate consequences for people that are in the economy right now from this inflation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the economy, you know, kind of goes from too much demand to too little demand. That's kind of what the economic cycle is. Um, And it's bad on either side, right? You can have uh, people have jobs right now, but the price of stuff is going up. Is that better or worse than a recession where people don't have jobs and don't have income, but the price of stuff is really low? Um, It's... I mean, either one of those extremes is very bad. And so obviously, like the the best economic times are when you're in between those two stages. But the economic cycle tends to move between extremes uh, over over long cycles. So it is uh, it's not easy either way. Like, is it better to have low prices and high unemployment or low unemployment and high prices? Yeah, yeah. Wow, this capitalism is a real son of a bitch. <laughs> well, ma- managed economies, I don't think, do it any better. So, oh, really? Like what? Yeah. What do they say about about capitalism? It's the worst like, of the, all the, the options. The, the best worst option, or something. You know, like I the, that was de- democracy, also. Oh yeah, but they're they're all they're all they're all the best worst option or worst best option. Okay, Wh- whichever way it goes. I feel like I've digested as much financial information as I am humanly possible. I know. <laughs> as I it's humanly too much. possible. This yeah. was all too much. Yeah. Let's pretend this never happened. <laughs> Do not publish this. Do not put this out it's and scare much. all of our listeners away. <laughs> it's too much. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Caitlin. Sarah. What is one thing a woman on the verge of a financial breakthrough can do today to, uh, within this inflationary environment, to plan for her financial future? Yeah, I think one thing that you can do is take a look at how much cash you have accumulated, either in your savings, checking accounts, or in your brokerage accounts. Um, A lot of people have moved into cash because things have been so volatile in the stock market and the bond market. Um, And if you are one of those people who has a lot of cash, um, I would think very carefully about your plan to uh, put that money to work in a more diversified portfolio, whether it's, you know, doing it on your own DIY or looping in a professional. Um, If you are worried about inflation, cash is not a good long-term choice because it's going to just be death by a thousand cuts as inflation goes on. So having some sort of plan to get a positive rate of return from that money is going to be important over the long run. And I love it because then if you happen to miss our previous episode, episode 14, what do I do with a chunk of money? Um, Sarah mentions a couple different strategies with that. We also had one on do I need a financial wing person? So that could be another um, episode to listen to because it also says the questions you should ask them to make sure that they're someone you can trust. Um, So 
you you know, this is essentially what Sarah's been telling us to do from the very beginning. <laughs> you know, in, invest the diversified portfolio, not have it all in cash, et cetera. And then also we did one, this is so fun being at the end of the season, we can refer to all this stuff. We did one on how much money should I have in my high interest savings account. So to do some of these real calculations um, and use those options that you have because you have all this cash to start making it work. But the inflation can be sort of a motivator to get that system in place and to not lose out because of the inflation. Am I getting it right? Yeah, that's right. Again, getting it right. So I did well on my test. You did well on your test. We can end it now. Yay. (laughs) Bye. Hey, do you have any dumb questions about finance or investing? Send them to us at our website, womenontheverge.com. Hey, so many thank yous to Kelly West, a woman on the verge in her own right, who took the amazing photos for our album art and website, helped with our website design, music, audio editing, cheerleading, mental health, everything. Emily Kleinsorgi, our stylist that did our hair and makeup for our photos from Lucy Skyrocket. Lauren Gross and Taylor Gross, who helped us with our graphic design. And our music is by Bad Bad Hats and Devmo. If your partner is making you ask for money, giving you an allowance, taking your money, or not letting you know about or have access to family income, this could be economic abuse. Learn more at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-SAFE. So Sarah, because you're a financial professional, we have to read a disclaimer for this podcast. I would actually really love it if you could read the disclaimer in your best legal voice. Okay, doing it. This podcast contains general information that is not suitable for everyone. The information contained herein should not be construed as personalized investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. There is no guarantee that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast will come to pass. Investing in the stock market involves gains and losses and may not be suitable for all investors. Information presented herein is subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a solicitation to buy or sell any security. I know the first thing you notice is that I'm covered in gold. The trip of the wrist, it can turn a hot bitch cold. To get what you want in life, girl, you gotta be bold. 